Bluebird Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements, opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. The COVID-19 impact has changed the world and the consequences of this global event will have lasting effects. The loss of life and the fear caused by the pandemic disrupted governments around the world. In fall, winter 2020, the IBM Center for the Business of Government initiated a grant challenge competition soliciting essays from academics and practitioners describing how government can best transform the way it works, operates, and delivers services to the public given the impact of this pandemic. The COVID-19 crisis has placed unprecedented demand on public procurement. Given the rush to procure essential goods and services quickly, attention has appropriately centered on using contracting strategies that enable governments to move with speed. It also reinforced the need to harden public procurement against significant threats and disruptions. To meet this resilience imperative, governments must integrate comprehensive risk management into procurement systems, policies, and business practices. I will explore this topic and much more with Zach Hutang, contributor to the IBM Center Report, COVID-19 and its impact. Seven Essays on Reframing Government Management and Operations. Zach, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. I want to talk about your contribution to the COVID-19 and its impact uh, special report that we put out. And, and you focus on you know, building resiliency in public procurement by managing risk. Now, before we delve into um, the specifics uh, of the actions you outline, perhaps you could, you know, Explain to us what we mean by procurement. A lot of folks are familiar with government business functions such as finance, accounting, information technology, but may not be as well versed in understanding what procurement is. So could you describe for us procurement in the federal context? And perhaps could you outline the key elements of this process and why it's so mission critical? Procurement, you can think of as the business function that involves purchasing goods and services that governments need, that federal agencies need in order to perform their missions. And the procurement function you can really think of as being comprised of three elements, a need, money, and a contract. The need or the requirement, what what really is needed in terms of performing the mission and the good or service that's necessary to support that mission. The money is of course the money per se, the budget to actually go out and buy the good or service. And then there's the contract, the agreement between the agency and one or more vendors to provide the good or service per se. And beyond that, I would just distinguish, uh, make a rough distinction between two things. 
procurement that's done for the sake of buying inputs into government's performance of missions and the agency's delivery of services. So government's, of course, not in the business of buying its own pens, pencils, automobiles, office equipment, IT. And then there's, on the other hand, government actually buying delivery of the service itself. This is where government actually contracts with a vendor to deliver the service on the agency's behalf. So there's a difference Government on the one hand buying an input into its process of delivering the service or the good, and then government actually buying delivery of the good or service per se. So Zach, just to clarify, the the side of the procurement process you're focused on and speak to is about procuring the goods and services, the inputs as you refer to them, that are mission critical for agencies. Is that correct? Yeah, so in the the field that I, I work in, we distinguish between uh, procurement contracting on the one hand, these terms get a little confusing, but contracting on the one hand and purchase of service contracting on the other hand. Procurement contracting, really looking at the purchase or the buying, the contracting for those inputs per se. Purchase of service contracting, really buying the service in and of itself. I've thought and done some work on both. I predominantly focus on the procurement contracting, the buying of the input into government's performance of its mission. And again, this is everything from what we might think of as a simple product, like a piece of office equipment, an automobile, software of a simple variety at the very least, and a very complex product, something like a fighter jet, a battleship, a complex IT system. So that's predominantly what I focus on. So Zach, in what specific ways has the COVID-19 pandemic placed unprecedented demand on public procurement? Really, I, I think at least two ways. We could spend the whole show walking through all of the different ways, but really I think two. On the one hand, it created demand uh, by government agencies in particular, as well as a whole host of non-governmental entities, nonprofit organizations, businesses, hospital systems, to get goods and services necessary to respond to the pandemic. So this would be your personal protective equipment, masks, ventilators, testing supplies, going out and getting those things, fulfilling that mission or that role fell largely on the shoulders of public procurement professionals. That that was a very intense process. And of course, the federal government was involved in some of this. Uh, Living in New York State, I had some unique insight into this on the state level where New York, along with all 50 other states, was for a time, say last spring, just entering this crisis. And all of these states were in effect competing with one another to try to buy what little was at that time available out there. So they were creating things like procurement strike forces, these emergency teams to try to go out, look all over the country, all over the world to buy that PPE, to buy those testing supplies. So that's really one, the the demands created by the pandemic itself. And then the second is the, the imposition of all of the hardship and challenges of the pandemic on pre-existing procurement business, the business of procurement and the business of government as it was being done in all manner of different areas before the pandemic really took hold in the US and around the world. So certainly the immediacy of the pandemic and the demand it created for goods and services necessary to respond and beat back COVID-19, but then the broader implications, those challenges and hardships that COVID-19 imposed upon the procurement workforce and really all of us, of course. So Zach, in your essay, you mentioned 
that government took some reactive steps to sustain their vendor bases, given pandemic-related work disruption. Would you tell us more about some of those steps and how did they help government agencies? Sure. So one that's really commonly talked about or a, a good example in this regard is something that was done under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act as we remember it which authorized, didn't itself provide the money for, but authorized government agencies at the federal level to reimburse contractors for paid sick leave. So if you envision a contractor that was otherwise doing work on site and on account of social distancing requirements had to send its workforce home and they weren't able to work, you can imagine the pressure that that would otherwise put on the vendor. If the government could reimburse the paid sick leave, for example, or the the paid leave on account of the pandemic, the vendor could then afford to keep the workers idle until they were ready to start doing business again. So sort of putting things into a medically induced coma, holding the workforce idle as opposed to having to furlough it or lay it off. So that that was a commonly highlighted facet of of government sort of tactical response to the pandemic. Uh, There were a few other features, for example, could we extend deadlines or periods of performance? Uh, Could we use more flexible contract designs Were there ways to get deals struck with vendors quickly? Could we, for example, forego full and open competition? But a particularly good example here is authorizing reimbursement of paid leave. One of the challenges here was that the OMB and then the agencies themselves had to start writing more detailed guidance to give the agency contracting officers as to how exactly to implement this. And there were some differences initially in agency by agency guidance, as opposed to, you know, with respect to, for example, what could be reimbursed, what activities could, or how do we determine what exactly is the money that's going to go out the door? How far back can we date the payments? Is it all the way back to January of 2020 or March 2020 or at some later date? So there was a lot to iron out in the aftermath. So Zach, you reference in your essay, resilience imperative. What do you mean by resilience specifically? And why is it an imperative? So here, I'll just, um, I'll have to quote directly from the Department of Homeland Security because they, they put up a definition that I use for purposes of laying out in the essay. Ability to withstand and recover rapidly from deliberate attacks, accidents, natural disasters, as well as unconventional stresses, shocks, and threat to our economy and democratic system. The ability to bounce back inevitably when something occurs, whether that's a natural hazard, a man-made threat, a terrorist attack, an economic recession, whatever the case might be, the ability to withstand some kind of adverse event and then bounce back from it quickly in the aftermath to sort of keep functioning even when the worst occurs. Zach, managing risk comprehensively is key to building a resilient procurement system. I was wondering, how does enterprise risk management, ERM, and related approaches like mission assurance factor in to an agency's ability to manage risk comprehensively? So when we're thinking about resilience, what we're really thinking about or what a lot of individuals think about in particular is resilience against um, those high-profile adverse events, a pandemic disease, an extreme weather event like we're seeing right now in Texas and across the country, um, an act of terrorism or workplace violence, uh, catastrophic cyber intrusion, something like solar winds, for example, we're really thinking about these big consequential events, variety of others, but especially these big consequential events, 
which, as you can imagine, affects an agency in and of itself, its entirety, as opposed to just one component or another component, and really affects society and government as a whole. What an approach like enterprise risk management, which I know the center has done some work on, does is it creates a governance structure and a process through which an agency, maybe perhaps even government as a whole, can take a broad view of risk, different sources of risk, risk of damage to lives and property, or risk of undermining mission accomplishment or accomplishment of strategic objectives from these series of hazards and threats. So it, it opens the eyes of the agency and of the government itself to take a big picture view of risk. There is a lot going on in the world. Uh, the sources of risk are multiplying. They're consequential. They come from a, a variety of sources. And particularly, the agency in its entirety really has kind of common cross-cutting exposure to some of these hazards and threats and the risks that they create, risks of damage to lives and property, risks of undermining mission accomplishment. So we need to, in a sense, match a comprehensive approach to managing risk and, in effect, promoting resilience through identifying and managing risk. We need to match the comprehensive nature of the threat with a comprehensive approach to managing and responding to it. Zach, how important is committed leadership to managing risk effectively? So if we think about what we really have to ask ourselves, risk management toward what end? Again, we're trying, in essence, through approaches like enterprise risk management to manage risk that otherwise undermines the accomplishment of strategic goals and objectives of the agency's mission per se. That immediately makes the issue important for the agency's leadership. They're the ones responsible for accomplishing the, mis the mission and realizing those goals and objectives. And to the extent these cross-cutting risks could undermine or prevent those things from happening, keep the mission from getting done, undermine accomplishment, of the strategic goal or the objective, leaders really need to be thinking about risk. And beyond that, sitting atop the agency, atop the organization, atop the government, they necessarily have a, a kind of comprehensive view that individuals at lower levels may not have on account of their position and on account of their specific set of responsibilities. So this is naturally an important issue for leadership. And leadership is in a unique position to think about risk per se. And beyond that, leadership through really thinking about managing, anticipating, responding to these cross-cutting risks can signal to the workforce that these risks are important. If you put yourself in the position of a line program manager within a large complex organization, say a big government agency, you may not be thinking day-to-day -day about the implications of a cross-cutting risk for what you do. But if the agency leader is really driving that home, that creates uh, what the GAO and what others call a risk-aware culture. It, it sort of embeds a concern for these broader risks into the day-to-day -day business of the agency as it's done by those on the front lines. You know, Zach, to enhance resiliency in public procurement, what two immediate actions can agency leaders take in the area of risk leadership and governance and perhaps you could kind of highlight for us some good practices in this area. Sure. So I guess to the extent that, of course, procurement is, a, is an essential mission support function. It's one of the ways in which agencies accomplish their strategic goals and objectives, along with the support 
of all of the other mission support functions, as well as then those mission delivery functions, to the extent that it's a key enablement function, a key means by which the agency is able to get things done in service of achieving its mission, accomplishing its goals and objectives, and realizing the end of the strategy. Naturally, someone representing the procurement function ought to have input and say, ought to be a participant in to understand the strategic direction of the agency. Take as a point of departure the strategy, the goals and objectives that the agency is pursuing. Insofar as procurement plays an important role in implementing that strategy and accomplishing those goals and objectives, achieving that mission, they really ought to be a participant in the process by which those goals, objectives, and those missions are formulated. And, you know, I, I, I suspect as part of its federal strategic planning process, the agencies themselves engage in a, a process of consulting with a variety of stakeholders inside and outside the agency. This likely includes, for example, at some agencies, assistant administrators who are responsible for those mission support functions, of which procurement may be one. So this first action is really just to reinforce a practice. I suspect a lot of agencies are already pursuing to one degree or another, but just to reiterate and reemphasize and highlight its importance. How best can federal agencies manage risk in their procurement process? We will explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government operations and management. My guest today is Zach Hutank. So Zach, why is it important for chief procurement officers or acquisition officers to collaborate with agency mission owners in identifying mission essential procurement assets? And perhaps you could share with us examples of mission essential procurement assets and identify some good practices in this area. Sure, so let's assume we've gone about the process of establishing our goals and objectives in our strategy. That is, we have in effect established our ends and our ways. Now we need to think about the means and the means we often associate with money. Now, of course that's true, but the means we can really think of as any resource that the agency is using to implement its strategy, to realize its goals and objectives and accomplish its missions. And 
assets are an important means. People, equipment, facilities, these are all things that the agency is going to use for the sake of performing its mission. That includes procurement assets and mission essential procurement assets are things like supply chains, contractor facilities, procured equipment, the contracting workforce, for example. And so after we've established the goals and objectives, after we've established the strategy, we need to think through what are those resources, what are those means or those assets by which we're actually going to get things done. And that's important from a risk management perspective because once we determine what are those really mission essential assets, we in effect know where we need to be keeping an eye on risk and its potentially deleterious effects. If we knock out a mission essential procurement function, upend or disrupt a supply chain, end up seeing facilities destroyed, threatened or harmed, end up seeing something happening to our contracting workforce, we know that we're going to undermine accomplishment of the mission and achievement of the strategic goals and objectives. So we really need to identify what are the means, what are those assets that in effect support implementation of the strategy, achievement of the goals, the objectives, and the mission. Um, this is where, for example, the Department of Defense's mission assurance policy may come into play. This is a good example where the department has in effect articulated mission assurance as part of what it does. Mission assurance in effect for the department involves going out and decomposing, as they call it, mission decomposition, decomposing each of its major missions into what it calls critical tasks and assets, determining what's supporting accomplishment of that major mission. That's the first step in determining where might those sources of risk be. If we're concerned with risk of damage to lives and property from some hazard or some threat, the lives, the property, or just generally the asset, that's what we're talking about. We need to know what are the vulnerable lives, property, and assets. This is where that comes into play. You know, Zach, after establishing goals, objectives, and missions, comprehensive risk management requires identifying and analyzing risks to mission essential assets and functions. How important is it for large, complex organizations operating in a variety of different environments to consider risks both inside and outside of their boundaries and across the extended enterprise? This is important. So the term extended enterprise is actually one used explicitly in OMB Circular A123, the guidance issued in 2016 to the federal agencies to formally adopt and use enterprise risk management per se. Now, of course, there had been pre-2016 efforts going back some number of years even to in effect use enterprise risk management tools, but this really was promulgated big picture through this guidance issued in 2016, circular A123, which uses this term extended enterprise to reference, Michael, just as you were suggesting, the fact that especially large complex agencies the Department of Defense being the penultimate example, the biggest corporation in the world in some sense, but a large government agency that has a geographically distributed set of operations domestically as well as all over the world. Given that it has an extended enterprise, is itself geographically distributed and operating all over the world. 
And given that it also relies on contractor partners, interagency partners, U.S. allies overseas to do business, to accomplish missions, it's also reliant on partners that are geographically distributed. And as we think about the extended enterprise or sort of the geographically distributed nature of government operations, we immediately realize that if we're doing operations all over the world, all over space and time, clearly we're going to be vulnerable to a variety of different hazards and threats. This is the idea of the all hazards threat assessment approach, really thinking comprehensively about threats given that we're operating all over the place. So, Zach, you reference a term called all hazards threat assessment. Can you tell us more about what that is? And more importantly, how does it factor into building a resilient procurement system? So all hazards threat, just as the name suggests, really means accounting for a variety of hazards and threats to the agency per se, to the government, to whichever agency we're talking about. And this could be uh, natural hazards, things like disasters, could also be man-made hazards or threats, uh, incidents of gun violence, mass, cas- mass casualty terrorism, catastrophic cyber intrusions, for example. And insofar as the procurement function of the agency is itself geographically distributed across space and across the public-private divide involving government workforce and government facilities, but also all manner of private sector workforces, facilities, and operations, insofar as procurement is itself distributed or extended geographically and across this public-private divide, it is itself vulnerable then, just as the rest of the agency, the rest of the government is, to this series of different hazards and threats. So if we conduct comprehensively this all hazards threat assessment approach, accounting for these variety of hazards and threats, we're in effect really thinking through those hazards and those threats that could affect procurement function. Zach, what is the other critical action you recommend that agencies can do to identify and analyze risk? And how important is it to rank risks by combining likelihood and consequences? Yeah, so this gets into kind of an interesting aspect of human psychology. Um, On the one hand, what we might think of as probability neglect, and on the other hand, what we might think of as consequence neglect. Um, Now, as it turns out, of course, people were right to be concerned about the coronavirus. Interestingly, though, if you look back at some of the reporting, I was actually reading a Bloomberg article, I think, earlier today from like January or early February 2020, which laid out this idea of probability neglect, which I think was a a term originated by a Biden administration advisor named Cass Sunstein, sort of a famous lawyer, developed the idea of nudging with the Nobel Prize winning economist Richard Thaler. At any rate, what this means is that we, we tend to inflate the likelihood with which something bad will happen because the consequences of it happening are bad. Consequence neglect, on the other hand, means that we're really sort of dwelling on the fact that the probability or the likelihood is low, so we ought not really focus on it that much, even if it occurs and invites a lot of consequences. Now, it's important when we're doing this to avoid both, I think, probability neglect on the one hand and consequence neglect on the other hand. 
because we don't just care about probability. We care about probability times the consequence of something happening. Something can be a very low probability event, uh, a mass pandemic, for example, but can, as we've seen, have huge and catastrophic consequences. So when agencies are thinking about or have inventory the various hazards and threats to the agency, to their operations, to their procurement function, they want to think about what is the likelihood of this hazard or threat materializing and what are the consequences of it to the agency, to the procurement function and to our ability to accomplish our goals and objectives and achieve our mission. And it's important to think about those things in tandem, likelihood and consequences. Yeah, as a follow-up, Zach, what is risk appetite and how does it factor into how agencies manage their risk? Yeah, so we can think of risk appetite as just broadly how much risk is an agency willing to assume to take on to deal with, how much risk is it comfortable with when it's thinking through accomplishing its strategic goals and objectives, how much uncertainty is it willing to tolerate, for example, that's its risk appetite. And this can actually be codified through what's called a risk appetite statement, where agencies will lay out risks from various hazards and threats, risks of damage to lives and property from a natural hazard, for example, or from a man-made hazard like a mass casualty terrorist attack. And they'll rank how much can we tolerate that risk based on the likelihood and the consequences. Is this a risk for which we have high tolerance is this a risk for which we have, say, medium tolerance, or is this a risk for which we have low tolerance? And why is that important? If we're able to think through and prioritize risk, accounting for likelihood, accounting for consequences, and accounting for risk tolerance, the agency then can use the resources, the limited resources it has at its disposal to treat the risks that it thinks are most important. We can't entirely eliminate every risk in our personal lives or whether in the business of government. And moreover, the government agency doesn't have resources to deal with all of the hazards and threats and the risks they may create. It has to prioritize and it can most effectively do so if it thinks through probability and consequence and compares that, bumps that up against what is its risk tolerance. It really helps the agency understand how it can use the limited resources at its disposal to address the risks that are most important, that are most critical or highest priority. Zach, identifying, analyzing, and prioritizing risks enable agencies to address them with alternative treatments. What are the four common treatments in comprehensive risk management? The four risk approaches or four common risk approaches, including four that are laid out in that OMB circular A123, are accepting risk, essentially not taking any action, just accepting that there is risk here. Avoiding the risk that is trying entirely to stop, as OMB circular A123 says, stop the operational process or just cease the activity that otherwise invites the risk. There's reducing the risk to an extent or trying to share or transfer the risk. Those are really the, the four treatments that OMB and the enterprise risk management approach as it's practiced say, at the US federal level really have in mind. Acceptance, avoidance, reduction, and sharing. Now, those treatments can correspond to addressing risk both to procurement 
and non-procurement related functions, assets, and enterprises. But we could use, think about one or more of those four treatments to treat risks to the procurement enterprise per se. And that's why I, I come back to, you know, the essay is really about building resilience through comprehensive risk management as it's applied to the procurement enterprise. But I really take comprehensive risk management as a point of departure because these risks are so cross-cutting, because they affect both procurement and non-procurement enterprises, and because I think managing risk to procurement ought to be nested in a broader structure and process through which the agency deals with risks of all different kinds. Zach, to enhance resiliency in public procurement, what are the two immediate actions agencies can take in the area of risk treatment and implementation? And perhaps you can identify specific good practices associated with each action. So uh, action one, then after we have worked through risk leadership and governance, after we've worked through risk identification and analysis, action one under risk treatment and implementation is to start to design those risk treatments per se, accepting, avoiding, reducing, transferring, or sharing risk. And we can think about this in a variety of different ways. So for example, if we've identified mission essential assets across say, that extended enterprise, and we've identified an asset like a commercial contractor facility that's at risk of damage or destruction from say a natural hazard, a hurricane or a tornado, one risk reduction treatment we might take is to try to mitigate the risk of the natural disaster to that facility per se. Uh, evacuate personnel, um, alter the physical infrastructure of the facility, relocate operations outside of the area that's vulnerable to the natural disaster per se. This brings me back to my hazard mitigation days working a little with DHS and with FEMA. We might try to take some mitigation measure to reduce the vulnerability of that asset, say a commercial contractor facility. So that's something we might do. That's an example. We've identified an asset that's at risk, say risk of damage or destruction from a natural hazard or threat, let's say a hurricane or a tornado. We might try to take some action to reduce the risk through some sort of hazard mitigation approach. So as a follow-up, how does action two bring comprehensive risk management full circle? So action two involves, after we've designed the risk treatments, of course, then implementing them. We can have the best design risk treatments that we want, but they're only as good as the implementation per se. We want then to implement those risk treatments. So let's get back to the example of, say, a commercial contractor facility. And this is an interesting one in the sense that as we are increasingly concerned with climate change and with extreme weather events brought on by it, we really need to think through the vulnerability not just of government's installations, say military bases, to vulnerability from extreme weather events, but also vulnerability of commercial contractor facilities themselves. This is something that the GAO identified in a summer 2020 report and really highlighted and that government has been thinking through to some extent itself. But nonetheless, if we think about the, the variety of facilities that are contractor owned and operated and that support government missions, this is an asset that really has that risk. And one of the treatments of the risk, say the risk of damage or destruction from a natural hazard is some sort of physical mitigation measure. That's what we might do. We need to implement that measure, actually take the mitigation action. 
actually take the mitigation action, monitor its impact, and then revisit on an ongoing basis. How are we doing with this treatment? Have we taken the mitigation action? Let's say it may be a single shot mitigation action, or it may be a mitigation action that is done on an ongoing basis. How are we doing with this? How much of the risk is actually being reduced? How much residual risk is left over? Does it make sense after we've taken the action to continue focusing on this treatment or to redeploy the resource to other treatments? And that really brings us full circle because then we're starting to think into the future. We have identified strategic goals and objectives, identified mission essential assets to support those strategic goals and objectives, thought through hazards and threats to those assets, and then initially designed and implemented treatments to mitigate or address or treat risks from hazards and threats to those assets. After we've implemented the treatment, then we need to think through how much risk have we reduced? Is there a residual amount of risk left that warrants a treatment or can we move on? And that brings us full circle because then we're back to strategy making. We're back to strategic planning. We're back to thinking through goals, objectives, and how they intersect with risk. So you see how this is continuous or circular as opposed to just a linear process that we march through one time and then are done. Zach, what prompted your interest in this topic? I guess, uh, you know, like everyone else worldwide, I've you know, never lived like this before with COVID-19. Um, and also just being interested as a, you know, a social scientist, a professor, someone interested in public policy and in particular in big picture risk events, especially in the area of national security, I just sort of gravitated toward this. And I, you know, I tend to think of this idea of resiliency as an increasingly important imperative, not just for procurement functions within government agencies, not just for government agencies themselves, not just for government as a whole, but really as a society-wide imperative. We're going to continue seeing pandemics. Public health experts keep telling us this is not the last pandemic. We're going to continue seeing accelerating effects of climate change. We're going to continue seeing catastrophic cyber intrusions. We're going, unfortunately, to continue seeing security incidents, mass casualty terrorism. Perhaps we'll enter some kind of security contingency that involves conflict with another state power. In a sense, the inevitable, the worst case scenario, may be at our doorstep. Bad things, for lack of better terms, are going to continue happening, and we need to keep thinking through, be prepared for them, and respond to them effectively. We need to be able to recover when the inevitable occurs. Whether that's the worst case scenario or something short of it, I think we really need to be prepared for this as a country and as a society. And I'll just say, you know, it's interesting from a national security standpoint, I think making investments in making our government and making our society resilient may create, a, a, as some have argued, a kind of deterrent effect that traditional forms of deterrence, the threat of force, the threat of a credible response might not. It may actually reduce uh, the motivation or propensity of some foreign threat actor to, to actually take some hostile action against the US as a country, as a society, because the effects it's going to achieve are limited on account of our resiliency, on account of strong risk management. So this is, you know, thinking about big picture questions and issues just, 
I naturally gravitate toward those. I like dealing with things that are fuzzy, that are complex, that are messy, that involve not just government, but public, private, nonprofit sector, members of civil society, just gravitate toward this. And then, of course, in the context of the current crisis, it made it all the more important and interesting to me. So Zach, thanks for joining me today. I uh, appreciate your time and also your contribution to the IBM Center special report, COVID-19 and its impact, seven essays on reframing government management and operations. Thanks again, Zach. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here and good to talk to you. How has enterprise risk management evolved in the U.S. federal government? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Business of Government Stories. The previous segment explored immediate risk management actions government can take to make procurement systems more resilient in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this segment, we get a firsthand view of how ERM, Enterprise Risk Management, continues to evolve in the federal government. With IBM Center author and retired government risk management executive, Karen Hardy. I think one of the biggest things now that I can, you know, hindsight is that um, the continuity and leadership in terms of, you know, my role and actually leading the program and being there for some time to actually see the process evolve. And that's important. Consistency is very important because, I, you know, as in government, we have, you know, leaders and, and uh, people that come in and out organizations all the time. And particularly with ERM, it's very important to have some level of consistency, you know, in the beginning, uh, just to get people comfortable with the idea, and then to see that there's some staying power for actually implementing ERM within organizations. I think one of the things that was unique to me was that I had a lot of time there where I could see the cycles of ERM and go through some of the cycles and things that worked, things that didn't work, and then have a chance to actually pivot and make adjustments along the way. And I think that if we come come out too soon from the cycle, we, we can't get a full um, appreciation for what it can do uh, within an organization over time. So I think the consistency piece is, is very important. And surprisingly, at this point, when I look back at it, 
you know, you know, commerce is, you know, they have 12 bureaus, 12 different missions. In the beginning, I thought that that would be a, a huge challenge, which it, which it was. They had challenges. But at the same time, I start to see the benefit of having the, the diversity of thought when it came to ERM within the organization and seeing things from other people's perspectives. That's very useful for, uh, you know, policy folks and those who are practitioners to, to see the other side and to see it from the lens of other people so that you can right-size it as needed. So I think those two things uh, were key in, in terms of having this within the Department of Commerce um, process and, and making it durable. During her time in government, Karen Hardy brought colleagues interested in risk management within the federal agency context together having played a key role in the establishment of a major association for government risk managers. Hardy explains how such an association has helped government risk managers achieve success. Well, I think it's more important than ever that collaboration is a focal point for this. Uh, you learned early on, and we've seen it even with the, the budget situation in terms of uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainties around resources and capacity and getting up to speed with things. I think the most important thing that we can do moving forward is to do more collaboration. That's the value of a firm and other internal groups within government um, that come together and exchange ideas, exchange best practices, and talk things through. I think that's very important. But people are starting to realize that you can't do this alone. There's no lone ranger in doing this, but collaboration is really the key. And then you get to leverage everyone else's resources in terms of people, everyone else's knowledge base in terms of expertise and insight, and also everyone else's energy. It takes a lot of energy to do this work. It's over a long period of time. And a lot of times it's a, it's a grind. And sometimes you're in the weeds, you, you know, you're, you have your foot on the ground. And it takes a lot of effort to get that done. So it's good to have a community of people there to lean on and then, um, you know, utilize those resources that they can bring to the table. The government and the world is living through a very historic risk management event and the response and recovery to COVID-19. Thinking about ERM as a discipline for addressing major crises like this, how has ERM supported agency actions? Hardy continues. Let's look at it this way. There was um, a few years ago, we had sequestration. Remember that? A lot of budget implications of that. It was a very difficult time to manage during that time. And there was a conversation even then with a firm of, you know, should we uh, still have our annual summit? And the debate, you know, with the, um, the board was to actually, you know, make that hard decision. And we decided to keep moving forward because, we wanted to prove that ERM was not something that was just done when things are going well, or when things are going bad, that is. But it's, it's something that's consistent. You know, the old saying is be consistent in season and out of season. So the whole point of that was to, you know, show that consistency for, for organizations. Now, we're in another crisis, different type of crisis. Um, one of the things it does is elevate the, the importance of risk management in general. Even in the general sense, when it comes to the general community and population are starting to engage in, you know, terminology and conversations about risk, they may not know it's about risk, but they are having these conversations. So it's very important at this time that 
enterprise risk management uh, continue to take center stage to say that the problem is bigger than we are individually. But when we look at this and think about risk collectively, we have more firepower to actually address those things. And enterprise risk management is all about collective thinking about what the threats are and how we can come together to resolve those threats within the organization. To me, this is a good time. It's a time-testing time where you test the, the idea of enterprise risk management, the practices, right, of, of enterprise risk management, and then uh, really just get the attention of leadership because at this time, leadership, they're all looking for answers. And enterprise risk management can be one of the, the answers to the questions they have. And that is all about their level of confidence during times like these, and ERM can help them build that confidence. Over the last 15 years, Karen Hardy has been a real leader in government as both a practitioner and scholar writing about risk management. It has indeed been an incredible journey. Well, you know, I just want to say that um, it's been uh, an incredible journey to see the heart and the, the spirit of public servants come together collectively to, uh, to support something they believe in. There's been a lot of people involved in and have shared in this, you know, building of enterprise risk management in government. Um, we've come a long way. Uh, I've certainly played a, a big part in it, but there's other people that have also played a big, uh, you know, big part in it as well. And it just to show you that it, when we come together uh, as a unit, uh, as a community of people, who all have this desire and passion to serve, it plays out in the work that we do. And I'm just so glad and happy that we were able to build a platform that's useful for a lot of people, a lot of leadership, a lot of organizations and agencies to build on. Now we have something to work with. And that's the, that's the biggest thing, uh, advantage that we have. 10, 15 years ago, nothing existed like this. But now we have that platform. There's so many things that we can do, and I look forward to the growth that's ahead of us. How has the role of CXOs evolved in the U.S. federal government? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Eng presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Business of Government Stories. Mission support functions have always been part of government operations. It's kind of the oil that keeps the machinery of government operational. My colleague, John Kaminsky, elaborates on the importance of mission support and its evolution. About a quarter of the total federal workforce uh, are classified as mission support. So this is really a significant thing when it comes around to looking at government operations. The Chief Financial Officers Act of 1990 created uh, Chief Financial Officers as the first statutory mission support function. So it wound up uh, designating them as the focal points for financial management leadership in each agency. 
and mandated that they conduct certain kind of activities like preparing audited financial statements. And each of the major agencies, so there's 24 what they're now called CFO Act agencies because they were listed in that law as uh, agencies that should have a CFO. They come together uh, as a cross-agency council, a government-wide five-year financial management plan that's coordinated by the Office of Management and Budget. And this way of organizing a mission support function was seen as very successful in formalizing and professionalizing a, a particular um, discipline. And since then, more CFO-like agencies, and they've been called CXOs, for the X being different kinds of functions, uh, were created. So CIOs, or Chief Information Officers, were created in, in 1996, and they have a council. And then the Chief Human Capital Officers, and then the Chief Acquisition Officers, and each of them are designated in these agencies, and they have uh, cross-agency councils. And then starting in 2010, there was a whole new wave of CXOs, performance improvement officers, chief data officers, program management improvement officers, chief evaluation officers, and overseeing everything is chief operating officers. Uh, that, that role was created back in the early 90s as part of reinventing government, but it was formalized in law for the first time. And then there's these non-statutory chiefs, chief risk officers, chief information security officers, chief learning officers, and, and more. So, so that's kind of how this has evolved over the, the past 30 years or so. Beginning in 2010, there was a new wave of CXOs in the U.S. federal government. And according to John Kaminsky, each of these chiefs can serve multiple roles. Well, I just thought it was interesting that when the role was created, it was sort of envisioned that they would be reporting to the agency head. And what it's actually evolved into is that they reflect different professional disciplines that have their own communities and their own ways of defining success. And while they generally all report to the head of their agencies, in reality, they have three different bosses, and what I just call three different hats. First of all, is they're providing services internally to their agency, so they have customers in their agencies, such as hiring for the chief human capital officers or installing computers or software, which is chief information officers, or providing office space, which is the chief acquisition or real estate officers. Uh, and so they can do this directly, or uh, what's happening now is that there's shared services where these services are being provided across agencies, so they can even contract out some of this stuff. So it's up to the CXO as to how they wind up being the service deliverers and their customers are being the agency's users. The other role they have is enforcing compliance with government-wide or, or statutory requirements, such as merit principles or capital investment guidelines by collecting and reporting them on and doing required uh, submissions to OMB to ensure enforcement or the Office of Personnel Management. And then the third role they have, besides services and compliance, is being the strategic advisor to an agency head, such as developing a strategic workforce plan or financial risk plan. And, and they kind of run interference with OMB and, and the General Services Administration and the Office of Personnel Management for the agency heads. So these three different roles result in them having three different kinds of constituencies or bosses. And so this makes it a difficult role to have. 
And so uh, that's kind of where it becomes a tough kind of job. But what are the pluses and minuses and the overall implications of the proliferation of CXOs in federal government? Once again, John Kaminsky. There's pluses and minuses, actually. Um, the trend towards greater formalization of these different kinds of mission support functions, trends are that it, there's greater professionalization, there's certification, people sort of are qualified to do these roles, and it gives them a seat at the table as a strategic advisor. Uh, and they also, by working across government uh, agencies, they can learn from each other, and there's this great learning network and sharing, and they can do things jointly uh, and getting uh, best practices from their colleagues and rapid diffusion of innovation, and they can do joint actions such as shared services and stuff, and it can really lead to uh, greater efficiencies. But then there's the cons of this trend. One is that mission delivery managers and agencies, those that, that do air traffic control or patents or healthcare and VA, they oftentimes perceive the mission support functions as more of a burden than a benefit. And that, that there's this perception that they're creating these monopolies that are unresponsible to mission managers' priorities. And there's also this whole notion of of the fragmentation of authority that mission managers have, that, that they have to go seek permission to be able to get things done as opposed to getting things done. And so there's this concern about accountability of the CXOs versus the accountability of the mission delivery officers. And there's a whole uh, discussion about stovepipe that, that they, these actions between the CXOs, sometimes you need to coordinate for an initiative hiring and IT and space management and stuff, and that they each uh, are have their own agendas and they go off and do their own things and independently. So there's perceived by mission delivery uh, leaders as process and compliance focused and not uh, sufficiently mission focused. So there's a lot of different reform proposals as to how these concerns can be resolved, both in Congress and the executive branch. And uh, we'd want to address these kind of tensions, but there's open questions that remain about which directions make the most sense. I hope you've enjoyed this two-part special edition of the Business of Government Hour with Zach Hutank, contributor to the IBM Center Report, COVID-19 and its Impact, seven essays on reframing government management and operations, as well as another installment of our Business of Government stories. You can download all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. 
We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits in retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.